Well, friends, uh, during my uni days, um, there were fewer things I found more miserable than a group assignment. Uh, than a group assignment. Uh, group assignments were the stuff of nightmares, and uni was, you know, a decade ago now, and so that's some pretty deep scarring. Um, uh, every now and again, I have flashbacks to one particular group assignment. It was a big one uh, with a presentation worth half our grade. Um, the two students that I was paired with, they were best friends, and I think that I saw them turn up to class a total of maybe um, three times that semester. Uh, in, in hindsight, that sh probably should have been a, a red flag. Uh, but the deadline, you know, it was, it was, it was um, as the semester went along, it became, uh, not weeks, but days away, um, barely of my emails that I had sent had been replied to. They weren't picking up any of my calls. And so I had to just bite the bullet uh, the week that it was due, and I wrote the 7,000-word paper on my own. Uh, I wish I was exaggerating. Um, I even had to script the presentation, unsure of whether they'd show up on the day. Um, they did, by the way, and they just read what I had written. Uh, that was a long week. Um, that was a tough week. And for those of you who somehow are in the work or the field of project management, um, God has given you a supernatural gift, I think, um, because you are choosing to constantly live in group assignment land. Uh, but friends, working out who does what uh, can be tricky, can't it? Who does what? Uh, who does what for a group assignment? That can be pretty hard. Who does what in, in the team that you might be in? That's pretty hard too. Who does what uh, when going on a holiday or a road trip? Uh, who does what in the home? Uh, as we come to Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 30, as we continue to think about living good news lives, uh, Paul anticipates and answers the who does what question. Uh, not in relation to a group assignment, uh, but in the realm of following Jesus and seeing that through. Um, see, for any thinking believer, they're going to ask that question at some point, right? Who does what? Who does what in the Christian life? Now, they'll go, how much of the doing is God? How much of the doing is me? How much of, do how much of the doing is those around me? Uh, and this isn't just some intellectual curiosity that, that is so abstract that it doesn't really mean very much. No, we actually need to answer that question, that who does what question, because like any group assignment, we need to know what we are responsible for. We need to know what we are responsible for so that we would see it through. And we're going to see from what Paul has to say uh, that there's a very simple and really, at the same time, a profound answer to that question as he continues in the passage that Iris just read out for us. And so as we consider the question, who does what?, uh, we'll be wrestling with, wrestling with the answer Paul gives uh, in the second half of verse 12 from three angles. Yeah, uh, The first point is the command to work out our salvation. Uh, the second point is the character of working out our salvation. And the third point we're going to look at is the community project of working out our salvation. Yeah, The command, the character, community examples. Uh, why don't you pray with me? Heavenly Father, be with us now as we come to your word. Uh, we ask that it would be a lamp unto our feet that it would be a light to our path. We pray today that you might shatter any misconceptions that we have of you, uh, that you would make us more familiar with your ways and more in tune with what you desire for our lives so that we might know them, yes, uh, but ultimately so that we might live it out. For the sake of your holy name we pray. Amen. 
Uh, friends, let's look at our first point, the command to work out our, salva- our salvation. Yeah, The command to work out our salvation. Now, before we get to the command itself, just briefly, Paul, you know, he's come from really um, tremendous heights, hasn't he? Uh, many of you um, would have looked at chapter 2, verses 1 to 11 in your community groups. Grace read out a part of that um, earlier as we were singing. But Paul, in getting the church to live, remember, balanced, yeah, balanced lives with the good news that they believe, tells them that in their mindset, in the way that they approach their relationships, they ought to follow the example of our Lord Jesus. The one who willingly gave his rights as the Lord of the universe in order to serve us, to become one of us, to die for us. Uh, The one who forfeited his advantage for our advantage. Paul says the church's humility and obedience ought to be in step with the Lord's, with our Lord's remarkable humility and obedience. And so now, as he turns back to the Philippians after, after, after really singing this song of what Jesus has done, Paul says in verse 12, have a read, verse 12, he says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear. And trembling. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. See, Paul is saying to the Philippians, hey, you know what? In light of all you know of the Lord Jesus' Lord Jesus's obedience, continue in yours. How can we who have a Savior that continued in obedience to the cross for us now think it might be okay to live in ongoing disobedience? Or maybe to think lightly of our obedience. Or maybe to think of obedience as just somehow an optional add-on. And our obedient Savior sets the pattern for our ongoing obedient lives. And so Paul says, hey, what does that obedience look like? Well, Paul's answer is in that command. That we continue to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. See, coming back to that question of who does what, Paul says it's the believer yeah? It's the believer that works out their salvation. That's on us. That's our task. That's our responsibility. If you call Jesus Lord, it's a responsibility that falls on me. It's a responsibility that falls on you. Each of us has the role to continue to work out our salvation. Now, to be clear, working out our salvation does not mean working for your salvation. Right? Very different. Uh, It's also very wrong to work for your salvation. Also, it doesn't really make much sense because, you know, by definition, we can only work out what we already have, right? When we work out a maths problem, it's because we already have the maths problem. When we work out an an itinerary for a holiday, it's because we already have a holiday in the works. When we work out our muscles, it's because it's already there. It's just often very, very hidden, but it's there, right? We can only work out what we already have. And since we have been given salvation because of the obedience of Jesus and not our own, Paul says to the Philippian church and to us, now now it's on us to work out our salvation into every arena of life. Um, I recently gave my mum a a Lego set uh, for a present. It was a Lego set of London. Uh, She spent her young adult years over there training as a nurse. I I gifted that to her. um, And it's, you know, it's as a gift, it's hers now completely. But, you know, it's Lego. So it's a gift in some senses that needs working out, right? It needs to be built. And it's her responsibility to put the set together. I'm not doing that for her. And so at some point, she's going to take out, she hasn't done it yet. Uh, at some point, she'll take it out. 
She'll pull out the instructions and she'll work out how the pieces all fit together. See, salvation is a bit like that. That gradually and over time, the gift of salvation that's been given to us builds and pieces more and more into every crook and cranny of our lives. But it's not an automatic thing. In a sense, we also have to unbox it. We also have to build it into our lives. It takes time. It takes effort. It takes deliberation and thoughtful working out. And so, we are to work out our salvation in our decision-making, as we heard last week. We are to work out our salvation so that it makes sense of the things that we do during our week. We are to work out our salvation so that it connects with those times that we are in our deepest valleys, but also in the times where we are in our highest peaks. We are to work out our salvation into our life. With, with all the salvation benefits that come, all the responsibilities that come, all the challenges that come, that's on us, Paul says. But that's not, that's not all he says. He says it's, that it's a weighty work, right? It's a weighty work. We do it, we see in verse 12 there, we do it with what? Fear and trembling. Fear and trembling. Not because we're scared, feared and trembling, but because we live out salvation we live out salvation that we've never earned, we've never deserved. That's a privileged position. Like what Paul says elsewhere, if we've been saved, what's happened? What's happened to us is that we've tasted God's grace poured out abundantly on us. Yeah, abundantly on us. And so as we work out our salvation, we do so as people you know, who've never quite recovered from the shock of that abundant grace who stay overwhelmed and, and quivering, experience such extravagant grace, who remain in awe of that abundant grace. See, this working out of our salvation is to be done from that place of shock, awe, quivering, being overwhelmed, or to use Paul's words, in fear and trembling. And so that's what we do. That's our task, to continue the work, to work out, rather, our salvation with fear and trembling. Well, what about God? What does God do, if anything? Well, Paul continues, well, it is, for it is God, he says, who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Now, did you hear that? Paul is saying, as you work, what's God up to? Well, God is working in you to will and to act. He's working in you to will you to work and to work himself. See, as you work out your salvation, He is working in you, enabling, empowering, partnering with you in that work. Um, there's an urban legend uh, of a Polish um, concert pianist uh, and a child that I think paints the picture quite well. See, uh, a mother took her young son to this um, pianist's uh, concert. His name's Paderewski. Uh, and her son, you know, she, he had just begun some piano lessons and like many young boys, uh, struggled with wanting to continue learning the piano. And, and so the mother brings him in the hopes that by bringing him, that he would be so, like, so impressed by this uh, pianist uh, that he would want to continue. Yeah? And so they arrive at the concert, they sit near the front row, and while waiting for the concert to begin, the mother begins you know, just to talk to the people around her uh, in the seats around them. And, but the boy, you know, he's bored. right? He's bored of waiting. He squirms out of his seat and he just kind of scurries away. A few minutes later... Um, uh, uh, chatter starts to happen throughout the auditorium. Uh, and fingers begin to point. Uh, because at the center of the stage, sitting in front of the concert grand piano, wasn't Paderewski, but the little boy. He made his way backstage, he found the grand piano, and he's sitting in front of it, and he's playing this tune. 
Da, 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 da. Right, and, and so the mum is freaking out. Right, she begins to try to scurry to the te- uh, to the stage. She's trying to save herself from this incredibly um, awkward and social nightmare. But before she can get there, what happens? See, Paderewski appears on the stage. He walks over to the boy, and he whispers in his ear, "Don't stop. Keep playing. Don't stop. Keep playing." And so as the boy plays the only song that he knows, Paderewski, he he reaches around the boy with his left arm and he begins to improvise this amazing bass line to fill and accompany the the, the Twinkle Twinkle Little Star tune the boy is playing. And then he moves with his right arm around him and improvises this incredible masterpiece that is now maneuvering in and out of that simple tune that we all know, played by this boy. And together they played, holding the audience and his mum particularly stunned by this brilliance. Now, that's a pretty cool story. I don't know if that's true or not. Um, I didn't make it up, by the way. Um, But it is an urban legend. But I think it captures, really, the heart of what God is doing. God comes to you and to I. He comes to us and He tells us, hey, keep working. Keep persevering. Keep toiling. He tells us, don't stop. And as you continue... He, the one who orchestrated our salvation, is the very one who who, who works in and through us. He empowers, holds, keeps, and brings us to completion. He works in our wills and through our work, and so he tells us, don't stop. Keep going. Just like any decent sailor knows that they've got to do the hard work of hoisting up the sails and turning them in the position in order to catch the wind that powers and steers the boat, we too must continue to do the working out of our salvation in every part of our life because it's there that we see the power of God steering our lives. And so we are commanded to continue to work out our salvation with fear and with trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Uh, We're going to move on to our second point, uh, the character, yeah, the character of working out our salvation. Uh, Because just like any work that we're a part of, it's not just about getting the things done, right? It's also about how we do the working out of our salvation. Can you imagine walking into a job interview and saying to the interviewer, you should hire me because I'm going to get the work done, yes, but I'm going to sook I'll complain, I'll bicker, I'll push back on everything that you give me, I'll come late, I'll leave early, but I'll get the work done. You're probably not going to get invited back. And similarly, Paul says, how we do the working out of our salvation, that's got to matter. It's got to matter because we want our motivations to, as we heard last week, be in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. We want it to be balanced and in harmony with the hope that we have. And so what should this character of our working out of our salvation look like? Well, he says two brief things, uh, uh, I think, in summary. He says two brief things. He says, um, less grumbling, more shining. Now, less grumbling, more shining. First, less grumbling. Paul, in verse 14, says, do everything without grumbling or arguing. Yeah? Uh, He's going... As you work out your salvation, don't grumble about it. Don't argue about it. Don't be like the Israelites who, after God took them out of Egypt, all they did was grumble. They grumbled about their food, their leaders, their conditions. They grumbled so much that they even wanted to be back in slavery. Um, uh, Some of you may know that I recently turned 30, and um, Jody organized a bit of a surprise uh, party after youth group um, on on the night. Um, 
And it was, it was a fantastic night. There was a, there was a bunch of people there hiding in the shadows, and I was stunned. Um, and, you know, there, there, was, there was a lot of my favorite foods there, right? People went out of their way to prep all, these, all, all some of my favorite foods, like, you know, salmon and buri, and there were hargals and like, snacks, stacks of snacks and desserts, and, of course, cake, uh, massive, massive cake. Um, now, I point out all that food not to make you more hungry than you already are, but uh, for at least one person at the party, all this food that was there wasn't a great thing. Right. Uh, you see, Pastor Pete is observing Lent. Observing Lent. Now, Lent, for those of you who don't know, is a period of 40 days where you um, withdraw from something. Yeah? You sacrifice something in order to help you prepare and reflect for Easter. And so Pete um, decided for 40 days to withdraw from any form of snacking. So apart from breakfast, lunch, and dinner, Pete till Easter, he's not going to be eating anything in between those meals. And if you know anything about Pete... He loves his food and he loves his snacks. I think he's had gout like five times in the last two years, right? And so being at this surprise party with all this food around him, pretty tough. Uh, and as I was talking to Pete, he, he said this to me, and, and um, I'm, I'm sorry for dobbing him in like this and spotlighting him like this, but Pete, Pete actually said something that was really helpful. He said this, that this is so hard, right? This is so hard, but it's got to be hard. I've got to feel it. Otherwise, what's the point? Right? Pete, Pete's not sacrificing, I don't know, what's something he doesn't like? Vegetables. Vegetables. <laughs> Thanks, Karen. Right? That's not a sacrifice. That's not a big deal. It's, he, he's like, this has got to hurt. Otherwise, what's the point? You see, friends, Pete could have just grumbled. He could have said, you know, why did I do this? Why am I putting myself through this? This sucks. I'm never doing this again. But friends, by not grumbling, he was communicating to me and to everybody who could hear. He was saying, you know what? This is good for me. Yes, it's hard, but I really wouldn't have it any other way because, that, you know, that's what Len is all about. And isn't that what Paul's saying? That we continue to work out our salvation without grumbling and without arguing because we wouldn't have it any other way because it's through this working out that God's working in us to fulfill His good purpose in us. And that's so hard, right? That's so hard to not grumble. We so instinctively grumble at just about anything that doesn't go our way. From the weather, um, to the taste of our coffee, to the traffic, right? I get it, it's hard. But when we grumble in our responsibility to work out our salvation, what we are doing is we are telling ourselves and others that, you know what, this work, it's not worth it. That this work is bothersome, it's cumbersome before it's anything else. That this work is more life-sucking than life-giving. And the more that we grumble instinctively at this working out of our salvation, you know what? The more we're going to believe our grumbles to be true. Friends, don't forget that it is as we work out our salvation that God works in you and in me and through us. Don't dampen or cheapen the way that God is choosing to work in you. Yeah. Now, don't mishear me. Because working out our salvation is often hard. It's deeply refining. It can be really uncomfortable. And it can feel often like pushing a boulder up a hill because of how difficult it is. But the reality of Philippians 2 is that this work is less about pushing a boulder uphill and more about a boulder that's already begun to roll down. 
Yes, there's going to be moments in like trees and, and, and bumps that are going to be obstacles on the way down. But if we are children of God, hear this, we are on our way. And in our working, God is working in us to will and to act and will ultimately bring us to completion. He will fulfill His good purpose. And if that's the ultimate reason behind it, well, grumbling less will be good for our soul. And it'll be good for the souls of those around us. So that's the less grumbling part. Paul gives a second reason why we shouldn't grumble, though, uh, that there be more shining. Yeah, more shining. Let's read from verse 14 again. Do everything, Paul writes, without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. See, Paul says that grumbling about working out our salvation, what's it do? It dims. It dims our light to a watching world. And this world isn't some neutrally watching world. As we see from God's perspective, it's warped. It's a crooked world. It's out of shape. And that's not really hard to see, is it? Right? We have a world where slavery can still exist in the streets of Marubra. Where shots from gang wars are fired into a home in Guildford. Where a daughter can decapit- de- decapitate her mother. Where birds can be bred to die cruel deaths of illegal cockfighting syndicates. Where our indigenous population can die in our prisons from delayed responses. And by the way, all of that is just the last seven days in New South Wales. Our world, says the apostle, needs those that are becoming blameless and pure. It needs those who live as they already are, as children of God. It needs men and women dedicated to the cause of working out their salvation into every aspect of their life. Not to show people how amazing they are, but to point them to what a transformed life looks like, empowered and enabled by the grace and power of God. To show them that godliness and living for Him is compelling and gloriously worthwhile. But ultimately to show them, whether they realize it or not, that they too need a Savior. That would become obedient to death on a cross for them and in their place. See, our grumbling and arguing before a watching world, you know what it says to those who see and hear us? It says this. It says, I wish this working out wasn't necessary. I wish I had some other way. I wish I didn't even need a Savior to begin with. Friends, we need to shine like the stars in the night sky. In the ancient world, those stars helped people navigate to where they needed to go. Our world needs to find its way to its creator and its redeemer. And Paul says the working out of our salvation into every aspect of our life and not grumbling about that work while we hold out the word of life to them, that's like a neon sign navigating them to Jesus. Uh, The 19th century British pastor J.C. Ryle uh, mirrors Paul's thoughts really well. He writes this, it's a little long, but follow along. He writes, of all sights in the church of Christ, I know none more painful to my own eyes than a Christian contented and satisfied with a little grace, a little repentance, a little faith, a little knowledge, a little charity, and a little holiness. If you have any desires after usefulness, if you have any wishes to promote your Lord's glory, be not content with a little religion. Let us rather seek every year we live to make more spiritual progress than we have done, to grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus, to grow in humility, to grow in spirituality and heavenly mindedness, 
to grow in conformity to the image of our Lord. So to summarize, who does what? Yeah, well, it's on us to continue in obedience to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, without grumbling and much shining. And it's on God that in our working out, that he works in us to will and to act to fulfill his good purpose. And as we turn to our final point, the community project yeah, of working out our salvation, the community project of working out our salvation, if you've been wrestling with this, you might be going, hey, Dom, you've got to be kidding me. That's on us. That's the character that we've got to have in working out our salvation. Surely, that's way too high of a bar for any one person. And if you're thinking that, hey, guess what? You're partly right. In some senses, it is too much for any one person to bear. As much as it is our individual responsibility to work out our salvation, Paul, from here to the end of our passage, speaks about three people who dearly love God and dearly love the Philippian church, right? Verse 16 to the end of the chapter isn't some random change of pace. Paul deliberately goes on to speak about himself, about Timothy, about Epaphroditus, godly leaders who the church in Philippi know well, who they are partnered with because of their immense love for God and this church. See, what's the point? It's that it's extremely important that as we do this working out of our salvation, that though we are individually responsible, that we don't fall into becoming individualistic. Does that make sense? We are individually responsible, but we can't fall into being individualistic. But it's extremely important that we do this working out in partnership, in meaningful fellowship with those that dearly love God and dearly love His church. Because, friends, this is a community project. Friends, partnership, um, for for those of you who've read Philippians before, you'll know this, partnership is a massive theme in this book. Paul speaks about partnership that he has with the church, what he shares with the church, what they share with him, the example he sets for the church, the joy they give to him. He gives thanks for the gift that they give him. This is a real partnership. This is real fellowship. And Paul, as he closes chapter 2, says, as you work out your salvation with fear and trembling, we share and partner in that with you. Yes, that working out is our responsibility. Yes, it falls on us, but we do it partnered. We do a partner. Now, briefly then, how do we see this love? How do we see this partnership from these leaders? Well, how do we see it in Paul? Um, Paul uses some Old Testament imagery in verses 17 and 18 to describe his life and his ministry to the Philippians. He says, verse 17, but even if I am being poured out like a drink offering, a drink offering is um, an offering of fermented wine that gets poured over on top of a, a larger animal sacrifice. He says, even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice, not of an animal, but on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad. I rejoice with you. See, what's Paul saying? He's saying, as you live your faith, as you live the Christian life, That's the larger sacrifice. I'm like the wine that just evaporates as soon as it's poured on top of the surface, on on the surface of your sacrifice. Paul thinks he's there to complement their faith. And so he goes, if there's anything that I can stir you on in, if there's any help in your worship of God, if there's anything I can give to help you in working out your salvation in your lives, even if it means to die, I'll do it. And I'll do it gladly, and I'll do it in, rejo- in great joy and rejoicing, because I am pleased to be the complimentary drink offering that accompanies the sacrifice of your faith. See, Paul gives himself to the church. He loves this church. He partners with them, and he sees his life in service to them. 
That's Paul. What about Timothy? Yeah? Timothy, in verse 19, Paul hopes to send Timothy to them. Um, and Timothy wants to go. Paul, in verse 20, says that there's no one like this guy, Timothy. He's exceptional. How? How is he exceptional? Well, in the way that he shows genuine concern for the church and their welfare. He's genuinely interested in their well-being. Timothy follows, in other words, the pattern of Jesus from earlier in the chapter. He excels in not looking out for his own interests. He cares deeply about the Philippians' welfare. He cares deeply about their interests. He cares deeply about this church. Paul calls Timothy his son. Spiritual son. See, Timothy shares the same spiritual DNA as Paul. He too yearns to build them further and deeper in devotion to Jesus. And lastly, Epaphroditus. How do we see this love and partnership in the church? Well, in verse 25, we see that he actually is from Philippi. He's a Philippian. He's from this church. But in the last little while, he's been with Paul because he's been sent by the church to Paul to bring a financial gift, probably, but to also help him out um, in other needs. And he's so devoted to that task that Paul in that same verse says, you know what, Epaphroditus, he's my brother, he's my co-worker, he's my fellow soldier. In verse 26, we see that Epaphroditus, he gets ill, right? nearly even dying. And that in that, he longs for the church. He misses them dearly. He is distressed, not because of how bad things got for him, but because he's distressed because he heard that the church now hears that he's ill. And as their chosen man, he's now distressed for, for, for them. He's the type of person that if you were to visit in the hospital, uh, he'll, he'll say something like this. He says, don't worry about me. How's the church going? See, friends, we have Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus. Three godly men, absolutely committed to God, absolutely committed to the church, partnering with them, serving them, seeking their welfare, being sent by them, longing for them. And so the church at Philippi were to work out their salvation in partnership with these men who love the Lord and love them like that. See, what does that mean for us? Yeah? What does that mean for us? Well, it's a game changer for how we see church. It's a game changer of how we see church. The, per- the people sitting around you are meant to be the people we are in partnership with and meaningful fellowship with. You serve them. You love them. You bless them. You pray with them. You exercise the gifts that God has given you for them so that they would continue to work out their salvation in their life. And they do the same for you. You commit to them. You give yourselves to them. You forgive them that God would fulfill His good purpose in each of us. And your pastors and your elders are also committed to do the same with you, to look out for your interest in that way. Friends, isn't that what fellowship's really about? It's more than grabbing a coffee. It's more than heading out for lunch. That's what fellowship's really about. This work is a community project with the people around you that love God and love His church. And there's no better place to do that than in the local church that he's already put you in. And so as we close, I'm going to get the band to come up. Here's here's the challenge for us today, right? Would we actually get down and dirty in the working out of your salvation? Would you actually get down and dirty in the working out of your salvation? See, friends, living good news lives isn't doing nothing where we just let God do everything and we sit idly by waiting for that to happen. We don't, to borrow that really unhelpful saying, let go and let God. It doesn't work like that. 
If we were to do that from this chapter, God may just well sit idly by with you. And that's about all that might happen. I fear that for many of us, if we were to examine our lives and how we've chosen to live our lives, somehow we have come to the conclusion that with no effort, with no deliberation of our own, that we would still magically grow to live good news lives. We might not ever express it like that or say it out loud like that, but you know what? Our lives show it. Dear friends, if that is you, forgive me for being blunt, it doesn't work like that. And so would you get down and dirty in the working out of your salvation? Do it out of obedience, do it without grumbling. Shine like stars in fellowship and partnership with your church. For it is God who is at work within you, both to will, to get down and dirty, and to actually do it in order to fulfill his good purpose. Amen.